The son's got atomic hope we can make him famous, but only after he pops our shoes on for a sharper inspection of some quantum mania. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven day guide to everything movies. Boom. So, welcome back to the show. It's lovely to have have you with us. So, we're going to start with some brand new movies, as we always do every single week. In fact, we've got loads to talk about today. We're going to start with something arty, Make Me Famous. <laughs> yes, something arty indeed. I mean, it doesn't get artier than this. This is uh, so originally. This was this was originally entitled the Brzezinski Project. Okay, so it's the it's the story of Edward Brzezinski, who is one of the sort of great New York artists of the East Side in the early eighties, who never made it big. There were those ones who there were loads of sort of known artists from the from the time, uh, uh, you know, Basky, etc. Um, and there were those who sort of were friends who were part of the scene who never quite broke out and Edward Brzezinski is a notable one among them this is uh, this is best house by our bites IMDB write-up as a madcap rock through the 80s art scene amid the colourful career of Brzezinski hell-bent on making it and that's what it is is the story of this artist's attempt to make it into the mainstream however he, he didn't as, as, as evidenced by the fact that this is probably the first time you, you've ever heard of him, Adam. So I'm going to let yeah. the clip. I'm going to let this clip sum up the sort of temperament that might describe why he never made it. Of course, the thing I'm most known for was eating a donut out of Robert Gober's display at Paula Cooper. You're not supposed to do that. It was our piece of work. I know there was a quota of how many pieces of work you could have in your life, and then eventually you'd have to edit when they got too many. <laughs> but we don't know how he died, huh? Or if he's dead. Or if he's dead. Why, there's no body? Where's the body? Nobody found the body? Edouard Brzezinski? I had said, no, there's no way he could still be alive. Maybe that implies that he didn't die. Do you think that Edward is capable of faking his death to the art world? Who cares about his painting? The, the, the mystery of Edward Brzezinski, I think, is the story. Well, he certainly sounds like an interesting character. And to be fair, we're talking about him, so it probably worked. Well, the interesting thing about this is, as a documentary about Brzezinski, it's actually not very good. As a documentary about the early 80s art scene, however, yeah, yeah, you know what? This works quite well. And maximum points for any documentary that ever gets to include Eric Bogosian, uh, an actor who, to be honest, to someone like me, is probably best known for being the villain in Under Siege 2 Dark Territory. Uh, I, I haven't seen that, so I have. But I mean, this I do like the sound of this. So do you feel like you're being sucked back into the 80s? Is it that kind of... And you really learn a lot through this as well. Well, it's like you say, it's a chronicle of a very specific part of the 80s, which is that, that, that you know, East Side New York art scene. And you do get this insight into what it was like to be... Remember recently we had that Chumbawamba documentary, I Get Knocked Down, and I talked yeah. about... We talked about, like, how it was, it was a really good chronicle of what it was like, like, growing up in Leeds in the 80s and how they had that sort of communist collective. This is... It's kind of similar lines. And you have, you have like a lot of notable figures from the time, like as Talking Heads, chronicling uh, what it was like to, to try and save money, for instance. They would go and eat at the Hare Krishna Cafe, you know, for the Hare Krishna worshippers. And they would, they would go to art openings, less for the art and more for the free wine, as we're told. Um, I, I, I can, I can sympathise, you know, that, that works. That's, that's got to be the only perk of going to some art openings. Um, Eric Bogosian, like I say, my highlight for this. Uh, directed by uh, Brian Vincent, who's kind of a fixture of this scene in the modern day. I think he's got his start on, I think 
forget the name of the Neil Patrick Harris film from way back. Um, but I thought, actually, it didn't bore me, but I did find myself wondering at several points, hang on a minute, what in the hell has this got to do with Edward Brzezinski? Because it seems to come and go on what it's actually doing with him. So if you're looking for, you know, the definitive work on this untapped artist, you're not going to necessarily get it here, but you will get a pretty interesting documentary about the bourgeois art scene of, you know, 80s New York Seaside. So so really, the kind of person that's going to enjoy going to see this in the cinema tomorrow or today or whenever they fancy going will be someone who's into art, basically, and not many, not many other demographics fit that. I will say, yeah, I, absolutely, and I will say, though, as one kind of final thing, this took me back to a very specific incident in my very first month at university in which our class were actually sent to an art installation in, uh, I think it was the, the, the workstation in Sheffield, and we were told to observe all the fantastic works of art. One of them was a pile of bricks, and I then embarked, the first time we were back in the, the seminar room afterwards, we were asked for our opinions, I just spewed what you would now know as a vintage vitriolic Van Rant about what is and is not art. And I'm sorry, a stack of bricks sure as hell ain't art. I did not say sure as hell. I said something a lot worse that can't be said in broadcast. Uh, and there's a very similar rant thrown in this documentary about a bag of donuts that are used as the donuts that you hear him talk about eating in that clip. I did that. I did that exact speech with a stack of bricks in Sheffield in 2006. True story. Well, you've actually made me want to watch it now just to hear that rant <laughs> to measure it up against one of yours. Uh, but that's Make Me Famous in cinemas from today. So from artist to con artist who takes on billionaires, let's talk about Sharper then, which is uh, also out on Apple TV and in cinemas uh, from today. Well, this is the weird thing, because we've gone from New York's east side to Manhattan now, to upscale Manhattan with this one. So... New movie starring John Lithgow, Julianne Moore, Sebastian Stan, Justice Smith. Uh, this one is best described as what would happen if you tried to make the grifters for the streaming generation. So the idea here is you get a, a disconnected series of... The film is divided into effectively 20 minutes segments, each one following a different character. And as the story goes on, these stories start to intertwine and builds towards the larger narrative. Just who's scamming who? It begins primarily from uh, following the perspective of Justice Smith's character, who's a young bookstore owner, very uh, very Pen Badgley and You kind of a bookstore owner without the serial killing, obviously, um, who finds himself swindled for uh, his trust fund, effectively. He is swindled out of $350,000, I think it is, by a young woman. He enters into a relationship finds himself falling for chapter two of this we then follow her story as it's you know quickly revealed from what i just told you that she's a con artist and we start to learn how she became a con artist as she is lured into the seductive arms of sebastian stan we then follow sebastian stan's story we then follow someone else's and someone else's and it all builds up to this increasingly interconnected tapestry like like i say asking who's scamming who have a listen we're celebrating what exactly are we celebrating? Billions of dollars. Roll up your sleeves. Trust me. You can't cheat an honest man. That's why we never feel sorry for the mark. I really like you. I really like you too. You lied to me. We're all human. Just doing the best we can. You cause your mother anguish. And I will not have it. She wants me gone. How do you think it's been? Not well. This 
This actually does sound like the love child from Ocean's Eleven and You put together. <laughs> kind of, with a bit of focus. You ever saw that Will Smith movie Focus with Margot Robbie about... Uh, Margot Robbie? Margot Robbie about ten years ago as well. Uh, very similar to that. It's uh, directed by uh, Benjamin Caron, who's largely a TV director, British director. Largely having done television, most recently did uh, episodes of the Star Wars series Andor, has also worked on The Crown. So he has a good sense of gloss and, you know, slick sexiness. And, you know, that proves, like, very fertile ground, fertile training ground would it be for this feature effort, which, like I say, did a good job. I thought it was a better movie than, than Focus, like I say, the Will Smith on Focus, way better than that. But it's best described, aptly, I think, as the grifters for the streaming generation, but noticeably way less sexy, because I don't think you'd get away with doing the grifters in uh, in 2023. However, I will, I will note that uh, one of the hornier aspects of the grifters does get notably revived in this movie as well, which, may, which does kind of spoil one of its twists, one of its many, many twists, which, like I say, will keep you guessing, to be fair. I love a movie with a twist, you know that. So that's the kind of thing I would like to go and see and get stuck into. Um, you enjoy so this? Yeah, I, I really feel like I would, actually, for what you've said and from, from, the, um, hmm. from the clip there. So that is Sharper. That is on Apple TV, available now, and also in cinemas if you want to make your own mind up on that. that. So yeah. we'll be back in a moment. Oh, sorry, Van. Say I was just going to say, I was just going to say as well. It is proof. It is proof number like six for the last two years that Sebastian Stan is at his absolute best when he's playing a sort of sleazy, sexy villain. So keep keep that going. Whoever's hiring Sebastian Stan for these things, absolutely keep that going. Doing a good job, clearly. Um, all right. Well, we are going to be back in just a moment. We're going to talk about the inspection and Atomic Hope as well. So stay right where you are. So we are back and we've got some more new movies to talk about, of course. So, um, Van, let's start with Atomic Hope. So uh, from what I understand, this is a documentary about nuclear energy, right? It is indeed. So (laughs) this is the nuclear argument, which you've heard a thousand times, but you've never quite heard it this way, which is this is the pro-nuclear argument. This is the actually, if you want to save the world, you're going to need nuclear power, which is... Not an argument, I'll be honest, that I'd heard made before, but I, I'd imagine there is a compelling argument to be made based on the hints that some of this lays out. It doesn't quite make the argument that well. It's a very unbalanced one, but we'll, we'll get to that. So the argument that's made in this documentary is in order for the human race to actually become carbon neutral, you actually need nuclear power because it's otherwise the most efficient way of generating power and that the world as we know it kind of depends on that. Have a listen for yourself. The world's largest and most reliable source of carbon-free power is falling out of favor. I'm talking about nuclear energy. The early closure of today's nuclear reactors was one of the biggest environmental problems in the world, and hardly anybody was talking about it. It's how countries that don't have their own energy develop. Is this fully focused on the USA or do they come over to, I mean, for example, near where I live, uh, Cullum, near Abingdon in Oxfordshire, they've got nuclear fusion and it's famous for that. I wondered if they dive into that at all as well. Well, for obvious certain, for obvious disaster-based reasons, this has to be taken as a somewhat global conversation because they have to talk Fukushima, they have to talk about Chernobyl, for instance, which are obviously, you know, know, mythically legend, you know, now as far as disasters go. Uh, Now, 
as, as, as I said in sort of the preamble, I'd imagine that there is a compelling discussion, compelling argument to be had, you know, on, on this particular subject. However, this takes kind of the similar route to something like Blackfish, except in this case it seems to be intentional, which is you can't really find anyone from the other side of the argument willing to talk about it. In the case of Blackfish, you had that was the anti-SeaWorld documentary, and of course SeaWorld weren't willing to put themselves forward, because why would they? Here it seems a bit more jarring and a bit more deliberate, like they knew there was no argument to be made and that anyone who could argue it was going to shoot them down instantly. And as a result, you, you get very little in the way of a persuasive debate. It is more of a propaganda piece than anything else. It feels like you could very cynically believe that this actually was funded by the nuclear industry, the nuclear field, as its own propaganda piece, because there isn't much in the way of an evidence-based argument to be made. There's certain logical steps that they, that they, they take verbally, like persuasively, that kind of make the case. But again, they're not really explored in enough, enough depth from the other side as well for you to really form much of, of an educated opinion on it. So what you do come away with is effectively a pamphlet of a documentary rather than, like I say, a compelling argument. And that's a shame because a lot of this, it was interesting to me. I, I was you know, ready to be interested by this because, you know, as, as you, know, you and I both said, this is not a discussion you're likely to hear generally. Irish... Uh, Irish uh, writer-director Frankie Fenton's uh, made this. It does generally delve more into Ireland, I think, than any other specific country. I think it largely hinges upon Ireland's nuclear infrastructure, but it does take mm. a global a global perspective because it's a global issue. And things said in that in that clip there, you know, this is the only sort of, you know, carbon-free energy generation process. At one point, I think we are told, for instance, and this is one of the few things I took away from the movie that really informed me, was uh, we were told, actually, if you wanted to go with, like, wind with wind generation or solar generation, it would take a hundred times, I think it was something like a hundred and one times, uh, the actual land space to generate the same amount of power as the equivalent nuclear. Which I thought, okay, now if you're going down that route, okay, this is going to start to get interesting. But unfortunately, they drop it just as soon as they pick it up, which I thought was a real waste of potential. And like I say, squandering what otherwise could have been a really compelling, really informative argument. But like I said the effort's, the effort's almost there, but they don't quite see it through. Did you leave feeling that you'd learned at least something, though, from this? Well, aside from the you know the amount of footprint it would take to generate the same map, <laughs> no, not an awful lot outside of that. I mean, there's notable is a couple of clips in there of, of Greta Thunberg because they have to, you know, for tokenism because she's literally the poster child uh, yeah. know, of, the, of the other side of this coin. But they don't themselves come up with their argument. Just seems to be just build more nuclear plants, and that's not really much of a constructive, you know, constructive discussion to be had here. I don't think. Okay, well, if you want to watch it, Atomic Hope is out in cinemas from today. Um, right, let's move on to the inspection then. This is, from what I can see, an emotional drama, Van. Did you, were you crying by the end? No, I wasn't crying. I, I, was, I, I had questions. I'm not going to lie. So this is, this is based on a true story, uh, based on the writer-director's own true story. So this is from writer-director Elegance Bratton, who was a young gay black man who joined the Marines. Partially because of uh, wanting a sense of belonging, but also due to a lack of options. You know, he's from New York. He didn't have, you know, he came from poverty, wasn't accepted by his mother, was you know, basically destined, as he puts himself within the, the fictionalized confines of the movie, puts it himself, he was destined to die on the streets. Another, you know, homeless black gay man. 
and mm. you know would probably die with a needle in his arm or beaten to death from a hate crime uh, as as we you know it's very specifically told in this joins the marines only to go through you know boot camp and deal with a whole other level of prejudice largely down to his sexuality this obviously is taking place within the sort of more modern era of how the marines handle sexuality but of course the more things change the more they stay the same seems to be the big takeaway of this movie and uh, because this takes place i think still during the don't ask don't tell era this is pre-obama this is just after the war on, war on terror um so the idea of going into the marines at that point is you know you are going to get deployed in the middle east he knows you know he makes it through this he's going to afghanistan slash iraq like flat out you've got bakeen woodbine as the drill sergeant you've got a very against type gabrielle union as as his homophobic mother and um in the lead you've got jeremy pope as ellis french which is a very thinly redone version of elegance bratton i will also point out that a big part of the story involves um the marines like being shocked at discovering that french as they call him is gay to which i have to question surely that didn't happen in reality because i don't think anyone's ever met a straight man named elegance but neither here nor there i tell you what here's a clip it's a little piece of paper it's all i have left of the dream I held for you. If you don't come back the son I gave birth to, consider this certificate void. So would you say that, that this is quite eye-opening then? Did you learn quite a bit? Because I mean, I mean, it must have been a real struggle for him at times. Oh, absolutely. And you do completely feel for him through this. Like, it's, I mean, it's a harrowing story. And I can see why if you, if you went through this, like, you probably couldn't wait to, you know, be, be afforded the opportunity to make this into a feature film. And it is quite a compelling drama. It's quite low-key. It's quite a sort of stripped-down, sort of, you know, very indie-style drama. This is not one for the sensationalism. At the same time, it's not necessarily grisly and exploitative either and there's, there's almost a part of me that wishes it was a bit more kind of exploitative in a sense because to, to sensationalize it just a smidge i think might have just added uh, uh, just a touch more gravitas to this that's not to take away though from some absolutely brilliant performances uh, jeremy pope in the lead quite a compelling lead i have to say that very good very nuanced performance a lot of facial acting there's a, there's a lot in the eyes uh, uh with uh, with pope i keep calling him finch uh french uh, jeremy pope um gabrielle union i did not recognize for most of this movie true story did not realize it was gabrielle union till the very end she turned up at the very end and was like, oh hang on a minute it's gabrielle union because she came out with my favorite line in 10 things i hate about you can be underwhelmed you can be overwhelmed you can never just be whelmed um having said that for me and this thing i shouldn't like i should he's a very hateful character uh, but he is an actor you sort of love to hate and that's bokeem woodbine as the drill sergeant and he very much is playing to type if you've ever seen the rock for instance very in line with his performance in the rock in which incidentally he also played a marine um great actor great here there ought to be fair the cast are all uniformly great i thought this was it was a great movie on the whole i would recommend this it's not all the way there i'll give it a four star rather than a five i feel like like i say just just something in the tone maybe could have just pushed it that last little bit over the top but yeah this is a really towering drama really affected me really worked i liked it a lot 
Well, a four-star from you, Van, is something to be celebrated, let's be fair. Uh, so, <laughs> the inspection. If uh, Van has drawn you in with that description, it's out in cinemas from today. Right, we're going to be back in a moment to talk about something that uh, I know a lot of people have been waiting for for a long time. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. We'll find out what Van thinks in just a bit. Stay there. So we are back and hello and welcome if you've uh, enjoyed so far the movies we've spoken about. We've still got more to come and we are going to talk about something that is full of action. Uh, of course, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Uh, I cannot wait to see this, Van. Am I getting excited for the right reasons? I mean, first of all, would you call it small scale action? Aha! But... Uh, <laughs> Are you ex- are you getting excited for the right reason? First of all, I mean, any I, I will argue any Marvel movie is is a reason to be excited. You know how I feel about Marvel, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get. To, I'm sure we'll get to that in the, the bit after the clip when I have to justify certain opinions. Um, so, third Ant Man movie. This follows on, of course. This is the first time we've seen uh, Paul Rudd, Scott Lang, since the events of Avengers Endgame, in which he was kind of pivotal to saving half of human, uh, half of all life on Earth, not even half of humanity, half of all life on Earth, the half that had gone away. We now jump forward a couple of years to our new present day. He's become something of a celebrity, finally. His life has turned around. Instead of being dismissed by society as, you know, another ex-con, he's Ant-Man now. He's a celebrity. He's put out a successful, best-selling book called Look Out for the Little Guy. And his daughter, who's now a, <laughs> yeah, his daughter, who's now a teenager, has sort of followed in his footsteps, only she's become a bit more of an activist. So Cassie, is, is, who's a little guy, she's about six in the first movie, as we're told, is now a teenager. She's played by Catherine Newton. She's got a suit of her own, enabling her to flip around and change size and, and shrink things and grow things. Has become, you know, someone who is literally, to quote her father's book, standing up for the little guy. Um, she has been working with uh, Michael Douglas as Hank Pym and sort of stepmother figure Hope Van Dyne, his daughter, played by Evangeline Lilly to create a new method of sonar detection that will allow them to explore the quantum realm, which is the micro-universe. When you shrink down past the subatomic, you yeah. enter the quantum realm. That is the smallest of all things. Only, this is where Michelle Pfeiffer's character, uh, uh, Janet Van Dyne, Michael Douglas's wife and Hope's mom, um, was trapped for 30 years. We don't know an awful lot about that, and when she discovers that they are doing this, she very quickly tells them, no, no, turn that off. However, no sooner have they accidentally sent a signal into the quantum realm than someone sends a signal back. And all of our characters who are in the Ooh. same laboratory slash basement find themselves pulled in against their will, separated and forced to reunite and find their way back out of the quantum realm. However, there is a little, little obstacle that might stand in the way of that. And that little obstacle happens to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe's new mega villain. Following in the footsteps of Thanos, we have our new big bad for the next two phases of this universe. None other than Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors. And this is a clip of Paul Rudd and Kang the Conqueror. If you know your comics, you know exactly what this character is capable of. This is... Ant-Man and the new big bad meeting for the very first time. I don't know who you are, but you've made a big mistake, okay? I'm an Avenger. I've called the other Avengers. You're an Avenger? Have I killed you before? (laughs) What? They all blow together after a while. 
You're not the one with the hammer. That's Thor. We get confused a lot. Similar body types. Who are you? Just a man who's lost a lot of time, like you. But we can help each other with that. Are you allowed to say what he is, or was that be given? Would that be giving away too much? I mean, I can go with comics lore and tell you what Kang is in the comics, but odds are that's been changed for the movies because they like to change. <laughs> within the, within the uh, the context of the comic books, Kang the Conqueror is the act is is actually Franklin Richards, the future son of Fantastic Four leader Reed Richards, who by whatever century it is, millennia from now, um, has effectively mastered all of technology that allows him to transfer to traverse different timelines across the multiverse. Uh, and time itself so we can hop dimensions and time has technology that makes him close to like a magician or even a god at times and he's you know literally dwarfs thanos so he's literally as physically strong as thanos but he has all the tech and effective magic that you can imagine imagine thanos didn't need the infinity stones and that's what kang the conqueror is the idea of pairing him up against of putting him against ant-man is actually quite clever because it means that you get first of all ant-man very much out of his depth like there's this, you get to watch a character who really comes with a certain level of smugness, and here it's nice to see him really without a clue, like properly without a clue and without, pun intended, hope yeah. either. Um, to see that rather than having face off against Thor is quite interesting, and there's a fleeting, uh, there's a fleetingly interesting idea of the sort of heist of, of Ant-Man being like actually you know threatened into perpetrating another heist, albeit one in a quantum realm. And that's when you get to the first of a couple of issues of this movie. This takes place in the quantum realm, as I've said. Apparently they've used the Void, which is the uh, the wraparound 4K LED stage that they used for the Mandalorian. You know, where it's all screens and it runs on video game tech. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea is it's not specifically green screen a lot of the time. They actually have the environment there behind them. So it's actually, for filming purposes, it's quite effective. And it does work a treat. However, the quantum realm itself is quite ugly and boring to look at, if we're being honest, because most of it just looks like a Windows XP screensaver or a lava lamp, like a, re like a really dirty lava lamp a lot of the time with some fungus growing on it. Um, that's one issue. And I'd say 95% of the movie, maybe more than that, maybe about 98% of the movie takes place in the quantum realm. So that's an issue it never quite overcomes. There is another issue, which is for the first sort of half of this, it's like a crap sanitized Rick and Morty episode. Which is particularly interesting when you consider the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, of which I am a fan, just before anyone asks, I'm a huge Marvel fan. Come on, I, I, was, I was in my 20s before we started getting good Marvel movies. I was the first guy in line for the first Iron Man movie. Twice that day, if we keep it count. Um, so when you consider the MCU has hired, I think by my count, I have three or four Rick and Morty writers to date. It's interesting that it's taken them this long to actually get around to just half-inching the basic tone and concept of a Rick and Morty episode. You then get, in the middle of all this, a sort of naffer version of Thor Ragnarok, complete with taking the Jeff Goldblum character and simply swapping out the actor. In this case, instead of Jeff Goldblum, you get Bill Murray which is not really a state secret. That's in a lot of the marketing. We know that Bill Murray is in this. Uh, it's worth noting he doesn't get to have as much fun as Jeff Goldblum had, and he's in no way the same kind of level of scene stealer that the mighty Jeff Goldblum can be. Uh, it's nice to see uh, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer get more to do this time around. Catherine Newton as the, te as, you know, the newly teenage uh, Cassie, 
interesting perform in interesting addition to the mix i quite like it adds a new dynamic which combined with the sort of grandparent element you get a very familial structure to this and the ant-man movies have always been quite good about that about having the the sort usually it was the sort of you know parental generation and the adult children now the adult children are effectively you know one layer up and we have a, a, another generation below them and that is quite interesting it keeps up this mcu trend of let's you know Let's do the the prep for the Young Avengers, where all this scene, the Young Avengers, where we seem to be going with the you know the addition of uh, uh, Haley Steinfeld as as the new Hawkeye and and the mighty Queen Florence Pugh as uh, as the new Black Widow. <sighs> Florence Pugh. Sorry, I just got reminded of Florence Pugh's uh, Vogue shoot this week, and I might I might need to be alone for a minute. I'm not gonna lie. Just, as soon as that memory pops into my head, I'm just like. Can you just excuse me, just just for like five minutes? Um, yeah, I love Florence Pugh, as you as you well know. Um, I know. But the real star of this movie, and I say it, it, it's a three-star movie. This is a three-star movie, and that saddens me to say because this seems to be coming, be, be it seems to be becoming increasingly the norm with the recent Marvel movies. Post Endgame, there's really only been No Way Home that I think is a real standout, and I could maybe make an argument for Multiverse of Madness, but even then, that one is quite underwhelming when you consider they kind of waste their own the, the potential of their own title. This three-star thing seems to be becoming a bit of a sticking point. And frankly, this also does feel like it was meant to be made a couple of years ago. Like, the certain story elements be like, why are we doing this now? Like I said about them hiring all the Rick and Morty writers and only now getting around to it. Feels like this was meant to be done before they started hiring all the Rick and Morty writers in a strange way. Um, the real standout, though, and the thing that puts it over the top, the thing that is going to make it notable not so much in the long term, but in the short term, is Jonathan Majors as Kang the Conqueror. Makes a solid impression, proves to be exactly as brutal uh, as Thanos was when Josh Brolin sort of first came onto the scene properly as Thanos in Infinity War. We'd seen the character a few times before, but it wasn't until Infinity War when you actually, you know, you saw him punch the Hulk in the face. They're like, oh, wow, this guy's kind of a badass. I, I never realized. Yeah, they don't, they don't, you know, dilly dally around with that one with Kang the Conqueror. They are straight in with that. There's a little, there's an attempt at a little bit of mystery there, but again, spoiled by your own marketing and the fact that most people watching this will have read a comic before or seen a cartoon. So they're going to know damn well who Kang the Conqueror is. And say, maybe they'll change certain elements of the mythology. I'm sure maybe he isn't Franklin Richards in, in future movies because the MCU does that. Um, but I'm interested to see what they do because the performance behind it is very good. And I say equal to potentially going to be greater than Josh Brolin, definitely. Jonathan Majors has got just bags of charisma. Uh, there are two post-credit scenes, incidentally. So one in the middle, one at the end of the credits. So do not get up and leave. Um, standard. However, <clears throat> standard. I will say, however, one of those post-credit scenes, and this is not the first time they've done this, does require you to have watched six, sorry, three hours or six episodes of an MCU Disney Plus TV show, which is increasingly becoming the norm and is increasingly becoming a bit of an ask because I'm getting really tired of coming out of these screens having to explain to other film critics what the hell they just watched. You know what I mean? Like Shame. It's, yeah, it's, it's getting it's getting to that stage where I constantly have like critic friends be like, "Can you just explain to me what that thing was?" And, and what that like, "Oh, okay, so you have to have seen one division for that. You have to have seen Loki for that." And yeah, uh, required reading on this one um, does seem to be largely Loki. Like, do, you do kind of have to have seen Loki to have a vague idea of some of the things that are going on in this. That's a little bit of a shame, isn't it? Because that then completely isolates the people who haven't seen it, and they're not going to get the most out of the movie. 
It does a bit. However, I will also say, in the interest of just irony, uh, Loki, one of the Rick and Morty writers. Who knew? <laughs> well, there you go then. Uh, Three-star movie, says Van Connor from Off Screen. Uh, you can make your own mind up if you like. It's in cinemas from today. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Uh, right, we're going to be back in a moment when we look at Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Stay there. And we are back with one last ride, a couple of new movies to chat about. First, then, let's go all animated comedy and talk about Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Um, I don't actually know from the research I've done what Marcel mm. is. It just says a shell. Is he a snail? Uh, he, he's like a seashell. That, that's what he's, he's a one-inch tall seashell. Right, just, just to give you the preamble on this, um, this began life about a decade ago as a trilogy of short films. Uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes on 1, Marcel the Shell with Shoes on 2, and 3. Um, they were a co-creation from actress, comedian Jenny Slate, um, Dean Fleischer Camp, I think, and someone else whose name escapes me. It's written on here somewhere, and the answer is... Oh, Nick Paley. And they have now uh, gone ahead and, and just made a feature-length sort of spin-off of these three, uh, these three shorts. So he is Marcel is a one-inch tall seashell with a single eye, and uh, and shoes, and he lives in an Airbnb. <laughs> he lives in a real-world Airbnb. So just to explain this, this is a a live-action mockumentary, okay, that takes place largely within an Airbnb. Dean Fleischer Camp, the co-writer slash director of this movie, making his feature debut with us, um, plays himself and makes this mockumentary in which, he, following his divorce, he goes and stays in an Airbnb, meets Marcel and Marcel's grandma, Connie, and decides, oh, I'm going to chronicle this. I'm going to make a documentary about it. And he starts to put the documentary on YouTube in the form of shorts. Marcel goes viral starts to catch on with members of the public and he's afforded a platform using his celebrity to try and find his long lost family. As bonkers as that sounds, I Aww. promise you it's really endearing and really cute. Have a listen. This is Marcel, and I, I left this bit out, I'm sorry. This is Marcel talking to his dementia-stricken grandma, Connie, who is Aww. also a shell. I should mention, Marcel, despite being male, is voiced by Jenny Slate. Connie is voiced by none other, and I'm not making this up, than Isabella Rossellini. So this is this is Marcel about to go out for a bit with the documentary maker, just making sure that Grandma has everything she needs while he's out. All right, so you've got the book, you've got a little bit of a raisin, which I really don't think you're going to finish, but you can go to town, go to town. Also, you have two drips of water. Look over here. What? You have two drips of water. You got an LED flashlight in case the power goes out. You just gotta step on it like this. See? See how it's like, whoa, what? sorry. My little stand right in front of it. Finally, this is the sparkler. What you do is you light this end on fire and then you step back. This can act as a flare, all right? What would I need? That's if you need a signal for help. And Dean's gonna leave you his phone just in case. What? Who's he the flare? You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, why don't we just put the colander over you now if you want? <laughs> How's that? You must let me out of here. That is brilliant. Do you know what? I, I, I couldn't. There's no visuals that I could see while listening to that, but listening to it, I want to see this movie. That is absolutely uh, adorable. 
according to IMDb, um, Marcel is a mollusk, by the way. So it's a mo- it's, it's a mollusk named Marcel, the shell that ah. shoots on. Um, right. I, I, this, I wasn't expecting an awful lot from this. I, it looked like kind of a, a twee hipster kind of thing that we get around award season that usually bores me to tears. Um, I was charmed by it instantly. The, min- like, the minute this started, I was in. Like, it is so endearing. I've not seen the shorts. I will now. I'm going to look it up now. I'm sure as hell yeah. going to watch that. I'm going to watch the crap out of the other three now, the, the three shorts. Um, This really won me over. Now, there is a bit of contention as regards the Oscar season, you know, credibility of this, because it's all the best animated feature, and this is a live-action mockumentary with a CG character. And apparently this was challenged, and the criteria involved... You can go up for best animated feature as long as animation features in more than 75% of the runtime of the film. Which does then genuinely make me wonder why none of the TED movies were put forward for best animated feature. <laughs> if we're being really mm. honest. Or if you're going to play that game, Alvin and the Chipmunks or Hop. Because I'm reasonably sure that animation features in more than 75% of those movies as well. But you know what? It's 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 award season, and uh, award season is nothing if not hypocritical and willing to bend rules to suit itself. Um, that said, I loved it. It was so charming, so thoughtfully constructed, so intricate, and just really moving, really emotionally delivered. The performance by Jenny Slate, I think, is what really sells it. I think the staging of it, the way the humour of it is, is at once both quite charming, but at the same time just laugh out loud hilarious. I mean, there is a simple offhand gag about Marcel's perception of the passage of time that happens quite late in the, and I actually just I actually disturbed someone in the cinema with how loud I laughed at this gag because it was an absolute cracker and I just fe- nearly fell out my chair just cackling with laughter and these people were just looking back at me like what, what, what's up with this guy um, it, it is that funny it genuinely is I loved this I, I can't wait to see this again I don't agree with it being up for best animated feature I would have put it forward straight up for best picture uh, but yeah big fan You've got Marcel the Shell. Please tell me they had the joke within this movie where they had another one called Me Shell. <laughs> no, sadly they do not. Oh. Um, they do. They do introduce a few other shells. I don't want to get. In, I don't want to spoil anything for you. There are a few other shells introduced, but the the gag always seems to be that they they kind of have reg, pretty regular names. Right. Okay. I love. I love the sound of this. This is. Uh, is this the sort of movie I could sit down with my four year old son to watch? I think, oh, you definitely, in terms of the content, you definitely could. In terms of whether or not he would enjoy it, I think he'd either find it a bit slow or he'd just be kind of whimsically taken away by the animation of Marcel himself, to be honest. I will say, um, you've got Eric Adkins doing effectively stop motion. I think it's it's stop motion for, uh, it's a combination yeah. of CG and stop motion for, uh, for Marcel. Um, but working in tandem with Bianca Klein's cinematography, you've got a film that re- just looks absolutely gorgeous. I'm just looking up who the, uh, the composer was on this. It was, in fact, Disasterpiece. The composer on this is Disasterpiece who did Under the Silver Lake, which is a movie's title I couldn't remember earlier. Um, really beautiful score. Really beautiful. There's something quite, something quite Apple Store-like about this, if you can imagine it, like an Apple ad. Like There's something like that quality about it, but it's just really whimsical and winning and charming. And like I say, I just fell in love with this really quickly. And I had n- no like pre- predisposed sort of inclination to like this, you know? 
Well, this sounds like a winner to me. Um, so Marcel, the shell with shoes on, is out in cinemas from today. Um, right, our final new movie to talk about, The Sun, spelt S-O-N. Talk to me about what this is about. Right, I'm going to have to be really quick on this for time reasons, but right. Okay, this... I'll, I'll spare that for till after the clip. Okay. This stars Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern as divorced parents whose teenage son, uh, Zen McGrath, I believe he's played by, um, has mental health issues. He's, he's suffering from depression, he's suffering from severe anxiety, and he, go, he basically decides, he goes to his dad, who's never really been there in his life, and says, I can't live with mum anymore, she's stifling me, it's, it's not the environment for me, it's like she's punishing me, I'm not doing very well in school, etc. Can I come and live with you? Only for Hugh Jackman to say, yeah, sure, you know, it takes him in. And the whole thing starts up again. This time the kid's going back to Ma, oh, I can't go and live with Dad. I am not doing well in school. He's stifling me. And it becomes a question of how far you are willing to go to help and support your child before you start to question whether or not that help is entirely justified or you know whether or not they need it or what might even be best for them. Have a listen. I don't understand why you're doing this kind of thing. I know. What happened at your last school? Hmm? This might be the time to tell me about it, don't you think? Because something must have happened. Otherwise, Nicholas. Okay, if you don't want to talk to me about it, I hope you talk to your therapist. I'm assuming that there is some kind of ulterior motive to what he's doing here that's probably revealed later on in the film, or, or is that a dead end? Right, before I answer that, I am going to tell you that this is a semi-sequel or follow-up to The Father, which you might remember two years ago won some Oscars. Most people uh, won the screenplay categories and uh, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins. Now, whereas that movie had a certain level of ambiguity to it that did allow it to work as a thriller, this instead plays as a straight Hallmark Channel-grade melodrama that would absolutely fall to tatters in an instant were it not for Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern hanging from hanging by their ankles from the rafters, flailing back and forth to try and grab some awards credibility. And believe me, Hugh Jackman really wants that Oscar. He ain't getting it. He ain't getting it because the movie's crap. The movie's absolute crap. Um, I mean, so so bad that the ending of this movie is, is unintentionally hilarious to an extent that the only comparison I can draw is the forgotten Robert Pattinson romantic drama, Remember Me. And anyone who knows the ending to Remember Me and how genuinely groan-inducing that ending was can sort of imagine what's going to happen here. This is just agonizingly poor. Florian Zeller has seemingly forgotten how to write. It looks very lovely. You know, look, it looks great. But you know what? You really can polish a turd. You just, you just, you need, you need the right lacquer, it seems. And uh, it's got the lacquer. It's got the performances. It's not got the material. It's still a turd. Oh dear. Okay. Well, if you want to make your own mind up on that one, that is called The Sun, and that is out in cinemas from today as well. So that is all we've got time for this week. I'm afraid we're going to be back next Friday, the 24th of February, when we've got more movies to talk about, including Creature. Yeah, new one from Asif Kapadia. You remember the, the director mm. of the, uh, the Amy Winehouse documentary, Amy? Yeah. Uh, What's Love Got To Do With It is a new uh, romantic comedy that's out next week. No, sorry, none other than Emma Thompson, Lily James, and Shahzad Latif, which always makes me happy. I'm a big fan of Shahzad. Um, Broker is out next week, Korean movie. Um, the Netflix movie, We Have a Ghost, with uh, David Harbour and Anthony Mackie, that's next week. 
Die Hard. The action comedy starring Kevin Hart as himself trying to become an action star. That's out next week. And most importantly of all, because I know that you know how excited I have been for this movie. Next week, finally, finally, sees the release of Cocaine Bear. I cannot wait. This is one of the final, I think this might be the final performance of the late, great Ray Liotta. A bear eats a block of cocaine and goes on a rampage, based on a true story. Would you believe it? I can't wait. Wow. I mean, that certainly sounds intriguing. Uh, so we're going to be talking about all of those next week on uh, Off Screen. Until then, I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor, and we shall return. <laughs>